Uh, with apologies to those of you who were here last week, uh, let me say again um, that we're doing last week and this week a bit of a kind of mini-series, um, thinking about just one verse, really, or one idea from Psalm 27, which is the beauty of the Lord. And then for the rest of the term, we'll be looking at, uh, well, for a lot of the term, at least, we'll be looking at the book of James uh, and then probably Haggai. So I'm going to read Psalm 27. But we'll be focusing primarily uh, on verse four. So Psalm 27. It's <clears throat> me. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He'll conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Uh, is your life or what is your life about? Never mind for now whether you'd call yourself a Christian, not a Christian. What, what, what is it about for many of us, I suspect whether we call ourselves Christians or not, it's just about the next thing. We are quite short-sighted people, aren't we? We live for tomorrow, or perhaps the next set of exams, the next challenge. We live for six months' time, maybe a year or two. But we never think long, long term. Planning not just for 2024 or 25 not just 2035, but what are your plans for 2095? Some of you are very young. Let me go a bit further. What are your plans for the year 2295? So too far ahead. I can't possibly plan for that. But that is what David is doing here. One thing, his life is organised around one purpose, and it's not short-term goals. It's not just pass the next exam, get the next job, 
find a, a husband or a wife, have a child, buy a house. He is thinking long term. Of course, he does all those things as we do. But they're all channeled to this one end. He wants above all to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He wants to see, in other words, the goodness of God, to be so entranced by God's beauty and goodness that he is blown away. And again, with apologies to those of you who weren't here last week, we saw coming through this psalm that what God wants to give his people because he is kind and good and merciful and generous is not just a kind of cold salvation where you escape going to hell and go to heaven. But instead, he wants to give you your heart's delight. He wants to make us into people who are just full of joy and wonder all the time. That is his desire. But we're well short of that at the moment, aren't we? So as we go back to this psalm this week for just one more time, I want to ask the question, where can I glimpse this beauty? I'm not in heaven. You're not in heaven. So where can I see it now? I'll see two answers. Uh, First of all, let's go to the temple, the temple. And as we go to the temple, we see, or David would see, a little glimpse of paradise restored. As David goes to the temple, the first thing he sees is a little glimpse of paradise restored. Now, let me do a bit of kind of background work here. Uh, David lived in the days when there was no physical temple built. There were no pillars and bricks and mortar. He lived in the days of of a tent the tabernacle, which was meant to be God's dwelling place on earth. It was almost, children, like the connecting place between heaven and earth. In the, there were three main rooms and the middle one that no one could go in, or rather one man could go in one day a year, but basically no one could go in, was called the most holy place. And in it was a box. It was called the Ark of the Covenant, but it was also called God's footstool. Now, children, I don't know if at home, maybe dad has got his favourite armchair and... You know, he gets home on a Sunday afternoon and he gets out his pipe and his slippers, gets the newspaper, and he likes to put his feet up on a stool. Okay, doesn't want to rest his feet on the ground. He, he likes them on a good, comfy stool. That's what a footstool is, isn't it? Footstools sit below chairs or thrones. So what the Israelites were being told is this room, as it were, was the connecting place between heaven, where God sat on the throne, and earth, where, as it were, his feet were kind of resting. It was, as it were, the gateway to heaven. Eventually that tabernacle got made into a physical temple, but the point remained the same. And two things would strike you as you came to this tabernacle or or temple in the days of the Old Testament. First of all, there there were places of great beauty. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. God could have made just a very kind of prosaic, sort of flat, beige, boring world, couldn't he? But instead, when you come to the temple, the places of his dwelling, it is full of beauty. So the tabernacle is, we get all this amazing description about it being sort of um, sewn with gold threads and purple cloths. It's embroidered with beautiful imagery. But the stuff in it, the candlesticks and the bowls, it's gold. Uh, There are carvings and engravings all over the place. Your eyes would be stunned as you came to the temple or the tabernacle, but not just your eyes, your ears too. 
God set up this whole system of worship, various festivals and days of rejoicing. And again, people don't just come in and bow down, you, O Lord, are great, you, O Lord, are great, in kind of monotone chant. God gave them songs, psalms, the book of Psalms, 150 songs to sing. The psalms speak about clashing cymbals and sounding trumpets. There are choirs and sort of lyres. They're like old-fashioned guitars, children. All sorts of music going on. It will be a celebration, a feast for your ears as well as for your eyes. Your nose too. As you came to the tabernacle or temple, there was incense burning. Incense is that stuff, children, that um, your mum puts in the, the downstairs loo to make it smell better or um, burns. Those little sticks, you know, those little sticks in pots. Um, I can't remember what they're called. It shows how good I am at this sort of stuff, isn't it? But diffusers, diffusers, there we go. Um, little sticks in pots that make the smell, make the room smell nice. The tabernacle always had incense burning, this sweet-smelling aroma. And if you're artistically minded, you would appreciate, too, the beauty of the words. Again, these songs, these psalms, just to look at one sort of part of the worship of God, these psalms are full of beautiful poetry. Even if you're not a a Christian, that the language of the Psalms is full of rich poetic imagery. The kind of you can study it just as much as you could any kind of Shakespearean sonnet. God is into beauty. He could have done what he wants. He could, in fact, have created the world as just a big flat plane, and we're all just disembodied souls, and it's all kind of black and white. And he could have done that if he wanted. But no, he instead creates this wonderfully um, diverse, rich world. Now, we broke the world. It's a total mess now, a total mess in every way. So the tabernacle or temple was meant to function as a little sight, a little picture of what it was meant to be. In fact, the tabernacle and temple were, were particularly meant to be like the Garden of Eden. It's easy to miss that when you read the accounts. If you're reading the Bible in a year and you, you get to the descriptions of the tabernacle and temple, it gets so confused by the kind of, you know, make it this many cubits long and high and all the rest of it that it, it sort of goes over us. But if you step back, the, the temple was like a garden temple or the tabernacle, like a garden tent. It was meant to remind the Israelites of the garden in Eden. So, for example, the garden in Eden had an entrance on the east, we read in Genesis 3. There was only one way in because there's only one way to God. And the entrance was always on the east. You couldn't get in any other way. So every time they set the tabernacle up or when they build the temple, the entrance has to be on the east. Children, I wonder if you can remember what guards the entrance to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are kicked out. Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, Brilliant. Exactly that. A big fiery angel with a sword called a cherubim. And so lo and behold, what do they stitch into the curtain of the tabernacle and the temple? A fiery angel, a cherubim. I've already said the temple was full of sort of garden imagery. They had to carve, amazing sort of stone workers would carve kind of pomegranates and fruit trees so that when you walked in, it looked like, well, it looked like a garden. The candlestick had to be shaped like a tree. On and on we could go. But the point is, that as you came into the tabernacle or the temple, it was like, in a little way, you were going back into the Garden of Eden. So the place where God wanted to be worshipped was a place of utter beauty. Why? Why? Everything God does is to reveal himself in some ways. God himself is invisible, isn't it? You can't see God. Now, our modern world would say anything you can't see 
at least with a microscope or a telescope, doesn't exist. But why? That is a presupposition, isn't it? That's not something that science has proved. It's something that science has assumed. There is no clash between scientific methodology and Christianity. The clash very often when you hear these science versus Christianity debates is not about the science. It's about the philosophy behind them that is often unacknowledged. Just because you can't see something, why should that mean it doesn't exist? Anyway, you cannot see God. God is invisible. So what does he do? He creates things that give us a glimpse of what he's like. Physical things that we can see and smell and hear. But in some small way, tell us a little bit about him. And the temple, this picture of Eden and paradise, full of rich colours and smells and sounds, was meant to show us that God is a God of great beauty. These things excite us, don't they, children? I wonder if there are smells that just make you happy. Okay, for me, it might be like, a, a, I think, a roast dinner. Okay, smell that. Mm. Some people like the smell of cut grass in the summer or a, a bonfire. And it's, oh, yeah, that's great. Things you see, things that make you go, wow, firework display, maybe. Beautiful painting. Things, oh, wow. Even things you hear, a favourite piece of music that really kind of stirs the soul. In fact, there's nothing quite like music, is there, for stirring the soul. It's mysterious, but we know it affects us. All those things are meant to reveal to us in a little way that God is a God of total stupendous beauty. He wants to enrapture our hearts like that. And so, although these things are small in many ways, one piece of music, one painting, one flower, one smell, they're a little glimpse of how much greater it will be when finally we do encounter God in heaven. So although you can't go to the temple nowadays, when we remember that the temple is a little picture of paradise restored, Eden restored, it reminds us that God has revealed himself in the beauty of creation. It is a broken creation, a ruined creation, now full of tidal waves and volcanoes and pollution and all the rest. But still, something of God's beauty shines out in the world around. Think of the other, some of the other Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. If, if we could see properly, if we could see properly, then we went out into the world, whether we're using our eyes and looking at the, the countryside, our ears and listening well, our noses and sniffing well, all of it would be speaking to us. Here's C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia stories. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. Isn't that great? The sweetest thing in all my life is to find the place where all the beauty came from. Perhaps you're kind of new to church things and you know, Christianity. It's always seemed like, well, that must be, a, must be a pretty kind of heavy load. I've always quite enjoyed looking for happiness in my life and trying to find joy. And to become religious and Christian would be... Oh, but Lewis sees it. What, what led him to Christianity was the search for beauty. Where does it all come from? Is it just an accidental product of a blind universe that popped into existence for no reason? With no design behind it? Purpose? Is it all actually leading to just nothingness? Destruction? Coldness? Darkness? What is this beauty that we sense? Lewis realised it wasn't just atoms in motion time chance matter motion he sensed there was something behind it and he rightly sensed that 
because it is God revealing himself to us. Michelangelo, the painter, for those of you who know him as a turtle. (laughs) While insolent and foolish people concoct a false notion of beauty, reducing it to the level of their senses, beauty comes from heaven and will lead any sane spirit to the place from which it came. Beauty comes from heaven and will lead any sane spirit to the place from where it came. So he's saying the same thing. Beauty isn't just a bunch of sort of chemical reactions in your eyes, ears, nose, brain. Yes, it is those things. You can trace them. No doubt if you're a clever scientist or doctor, you can see the kind of buzzing in the brain. That's all true. We don't need to deny that. But it's not just that. In the same way as if you're really, really clever, maybe, you you can work out what's happening in someone's brain when they say that two plus two is four. Maybe nowadays, I have no idea, maybe nowadays some really brilliant brain scientist can kind of map the firing of the, excuse me, the whatever it is in your brain that buzzes when you do maths. But that doesn't get get rid of the reality that two plus two really is four. It's not just a product in your brain. It's not just a buzzing in your brain. There is a reality out there that two plus two equals four. Well, so too with beauty. It's not just a bunch of sensations in our body, Michelangelo is saying. It is meant to lead us to the source of real beauty above. All of which, C.S. Lewis, Michelangelo, David, most significantly in this psalm, He's trying to lead us to read the world rightly. When we go outside, we're fools, they're saying, if we stop by just staying at the human level, at the worldly level. Instead, every time our heart skips a beat, every time our heart sings with joy, every time our eyes blink with wonder, our hearts are meant to bounce up to heaven. You, O oh Lord, are great and beautiful. Creation is as full of language, sorry, as full as a language is of words. Jonathan Edwards. Creation is as full as a language is of words. A dictionary, children. Imagine a dictionary. People probably don't use dictionaries anymore, do they? When I went to school, one of the first things we had to buy was a dictionary. A dictionary explains what every word means. And the biggest English dictionary ought to have every English word in it. Edwards is saying that the world outside... Maybe not that bit of it too much, but, you know, most of it. The world outside is full of words telling us how great God is. Even Shakespeare saw this, as you like it, for the drama students among you. As you look around, you find tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones and good in everything. Creation preaches God's beauty. Now, as I said already, you don't experience it all now. In fact, even David couldn't go right into the tabernacle. He could get into the first bit, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But he couldn't get right into the heart of it. In fact, he, in his day, couldn't get into the bit that had the kind of um, tree-shaped candlestick. He couldn't go past the cherubim curtain because he wasn't a priest. So he was cut off from this glimpse of Eden. But he still longed to be there one day. And I suspect he knew that one day he would really be in the presence of God. Not in the footstool, not at the bottom, but up there in heaven.
what does that mean for us now? It, it means that we, we should expect our hearts to fall short of being totally enraptured with God's beauty here and now. We don't want them to fall short. We wish they were full of joy and desire for God. And, but in reality, we're on heaven. We're in, sorry, we're on earth, not in heaven. There is a future focus to the revelation of God's beauty. At the moment, we're still clouded by sin. At the moment, we're still on earth, not in heaven. But, but this realization that there is beauty ahead makes heaven even more wonderful. One day we will see like this if we just ask God for the mercy to be forgiven and allowed to join him in heaven. Which means that your death is going to be the greatest day of your life. Great sorrow for everybody else, no doubt, who misses you and mourns you. But for you, if you're trusting Christ, if you're forgiven, the greatest day of your life. All sorts of reasons, but one will be you will see things that will blow you away, your heart enraptured, and supremely that will be God. Now, what, how exactly that looks, what exactly it looks like, there's been all sorts of debate in the history of the church that will take us too far uh, aside for this morning to dive into. Perhaps we'll return to it another time. I suspect it will be in the face of Christ. I suspect that it is by looking at Christ that somehow we will be um, given this spectacular vision of God. But whatever the kind of physical dynamics of it, the promise is there. That means if we really got Psalm 27 verse 4, if we really got Psalm 27 verse 4, we'd almost be desiring to die because of the absolute stunning future that awaits. Now, Christians aren't meant to want to die. We haven't got a death wish. You're meant to live as long as God grants you. Okay, so don't mishear me here. But Paul in the New Testament, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or, or another occasion when he sort of, I'm not sure if I'm going to live or die. To, to die, to depart, is better by far. If we really saw the beauty of God, we'd, well, we'd stay and serve down here on earth. But we couldn't wait until we die and see him in his beauty. The temple is a place that reveals the glory of God because create is the apex of creation, the pinnacle of the beautiful world he's made. <clears throat> Before we finish, I want to think about one other aspect of the temple. So the temple, again, we asked, began by asking, where do we see God's beauty? We see it in the temple as it reveals the glory of creation. But we also see it in the temple as the place of slaughter. The place of slaughter. It's our second and, and final thought this morning. The beauty, is, the beauty of the temple, the gold, the purple, the smells, it's only half the story. Or rather, the obvious beauty of the temple and the tabernacle is only half the story. You see, if you went, children, if you went to the temple or the tabernacle, it wouldn't be like a sort of quiet sanctuary. I wonder if you've been to one of those kind of beautiful gardens. They're often kind of themed among, uh, from, from the Far East. Um, gentle pools, trickling waterfalls, lilies on the pond. Perhaps you've seen documentaries or travelled and been to kind of Eastern temples and there's just silence. Occasional little symbols. Not so with God's temple. It was a place of slaughter, of death. You would have seen animals being killed. Goats, sheep, doves, slaughtered, blood, 
guts and gore. You'd have seen them being roasted on a barbecue, an altar, as they called it. It was a place of death and destruction. A place of ugliness, therefore? Is that that a kind of contrast to the beauty of the gold and the silver and the purple and the smells and the belt? No, not if you see rightly. David's Psalm 27 verse 4 desires to see the beauty of the Lord in his temple. He knows the temple is a place of slaughter. But he sees the beauty in that slaughter, in that death. Even in the killing of all these animals. Because he sees rightly what is going on. Those sacrifices were all about atonement. All about paying for our sin. At the simplest level, at the simplest level, that the worshipper came in, put his hand on the, end, on, the, on the head of an animal, and it was as if the animal became that person. So for the person to approach God would normally mean death. We're sinners and God is beautifully holy. We, we'd just be consumed, destroyed if we walked into his presence. And so the animal takes the worshipper's place, the sinner's place. The animal dies on the altar. And that means my sin is taken away. A death has paid for my sin. Someone has died in my place. Now, of course, with the animals, it's just picture language. But it's a picture of what God was going to do. Come to earth himself in the person of his son. And when Jesus came, he wasn't full of human beauty, it seems. Remember that passage in Isaiah 53? Let me read a few verses from the beginning of Isaiah 53. Talking about Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus didn't seem to stride through the streets of Nazareth as a kind of male model. As a kind of chiseled, toned athlete. Nothing particularly beautiful about him physically that made him stand out. In fact, on Isaiah goes, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. People sort of turned away. Oh, no. Not because I think he was physically deformed in any way, at least not until the cross. But rather at that point, Isaiah has turned attention to the cross. This ordinary looking man who was in fact God had come, well, to take our place, to die so that we might not. Atonement was at the heart of the temple where God met his people. And it all pointed forward to the great atonement of the cross. In other words, if you want to see God's beauty for now... For now, you do so by looking to the cross, looking to the place of rescue. Basically, let me step back a, 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 a step. Basically, there are two reactions to God. There are really only two reactions to God in the Bible, all things being equal. When God appears, okay, when his glory is revealed, one of two things happen. Either people say, woe to me, I am, I am, I'm done, I'm dead. That's very common, Isaiah 6. Woe to me, I'm ruined. 
all this, all this time I've been happily plodding along on earth thinking I'm fine and then suddenly God shows up and whoa, I realise the truth that I've been denying all these years. It's terror, it's fear, or, or sometimes the same God turns up and it's wonder and awe and worship and joy. What makes the difference? What makes the difference between seeing all God's character as something attractive and delightful rather than terrifying? The difference. It's not in God, he's the same God. The difference in whether is whether we've come to him through the sacrifice of Jesus or not, through the atonement. Have we tried, as it were, to run into God's presence without atonement, without something paying for our sins? Do you want to imagine someone trying to get into the temple? Well, what would happen if someone tried to get into the temple? Normally you came and the first thing you saw was the altar, but someone runs in and jumps over the altar and tries to get into the place of God's presence without any atonement, any sin paying for. What would happen? They would die. We cannot experience God. We cannot meet God, sinful as we are, without this forgiveness. But when we come via the cross, we see that God is for us, that he will forgive us, that our sin has been paid for. What do we do all this? Where do we call this? Yes, creation reveals God's beauty, but we're not just meant to be kind of new age, I don't know, hippie types who just walk around, oh, I just sense God's beauty in everything. We come through the cross. We come and at the cross, we see that whilst it remains true that God is burningly holy, burningly pure, he's also full of love and mercy and desires to save. Earlier, Brett quoted that verse. Um, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God wants all men to be saved. He wants to save you. And that's why he gave Christ. And so as you begin this year, can I commend you coming each day to God at the foot of the cross, whatever else you do in your devotional life, or come via the cross. It is only when you see God is for you that you can dare gaze on his beauty and approach him. If you suspect that deep down he's against you, you just won't want to come near him. You won't want to pray. You won't want to worship. You might come to church out of guilt, but you, you don't want to get too close, engage too much, because he's basically terrifying. The more you see that God is for you, full of love and joy and this desire to share his beauty, the more you'll want to approach and gaze and see interesting isn't it david one thing have i asked of the lord one thing i mean one thing david he wrote well, i've never counted but he wrote the majority of the psalms they're full of requests what does it mean to only ask god for one thing what about the lord's prayer children do you remember the lord's prayer we ask for lots of things don't we we say forgive us our sins we ask not to be led into temptation we get asked um, we ask God to give us our daily bread. Is that a contradiction with what David is saying? No, I don't think so. Because all these other things head towards this one end. Forgive us our sins so that we can see you in your beauty. 
Lead us not into temptation so we don't get taken astray by filling our minds with so much other rubbish that we haven't got time to see your beauty. Give us our daily bread. Sustain us physically. I'm a human being. I need bread and water to keep going. Give me my daily needs so that I keep living in order that I can see your beauty. They all tend towards this one great end. Ask and he will give because he delights to give. It may be at the moment you're like, your experience is like that of the, um, the bride in the Song of Solomon. You read the Song of Solomon, strange book in lots of ways. We should come back to it one day when I'm braver. <laughs> or when my wife's not here. The bride is searching for her husband uh, to be, husband to be. And there's this part in, in chapter three uh, where she says, I sought him who my soul loves, but I, I sought him but found him not. I can't find him. Where is he? So she says, I, I'll get up now and run about the city and the streets, the squares. I'll seek after him. And then she says again, I sought him, but I found him not. So you imagine this bride, where is she? Where's my husband to be? Where's my fiance? Where? Just running, running. And it, and it feels like she's, he's not there. Or chapter two, it, it describes him as, as if he's standing behind a wall. Sometimes your experience with God will, will feel like that. He's behind a wall. Where is he? If that's you at the moment, don't panic. Just because he's behind the wall doesn't mean he's not there. doesn't mean he's not for you. Sometimes you have to walk in darkness. For whatever reasons, he, he leaves us walking in darkness. One of the verses that the Puritans used to quote lots from Isaiah 50. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Walking in darkness for now, I don't feel it. I don't sense it. My heart's not. Isaiah says, if you have no light at the moment, keep trusting and relying on God. You're not saved by your feelings, by your experiences. Keep trusting the pledge that he is for you which is revealed at Calvary, at the cross. That is where he says, trust, trust that I have paid it all and trust, therefore, that you are welcome, that even if now you're walking in darkness, I seem to be hidden behind a wall, one day you will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and your soul will be enraptured. One thing have I asked of the Lord. If your prayer life goes to pieces in January, one thing to ask, ask him to reveal his beauty to you and start by each day thinking, meditating, inquiring. Last verse of, last sentence of, of, of verse four, inquiring. Back to the cross, Lord Jesus, you have come down and died for me. You didn't need to, but you did. You cried, it is finished. There's nothing for me to do. You welcomed even the thief in his last breath. So much to delve into at the cross and the place. Ultimately, you'll find peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we, we pray with David. One thing we would ask, that we could gaze upon your beauty. For those of us walking in darkness, uh, we pray that we would keep trusting. And not imagining that we need to bring you anything, state of our heart or our emotional life, in order to please you. Would we rely on the work of Christ alone? And Father, as a whole church, men, women, children, we pray that increasingly we would find our delight in you. Speak to us through creation, through your word. Speak to us from the cross, we pray. And will we work towards that great end of seeing you one day in heaven? We entrust ourselves to you in the name of your son. Amen.